This is episode 27 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. In this episode, we're going back to Men's Roundup 2007, Let the Story Guide You. This is session one with Don Miller. Um, it's, it's really, really good to be here for a, a number of reasons. I've been looking forward to this event for a very long time. Paintball's a big part of it. Um, but the other reason is that, is that if I weren't here uh, tonight, uh, my girlfriend had two tickets to Justin Timberlake back home in Portland. <laughs> and I would be there and uh, feeling very feminine. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's very, very good to be here tonight. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, about story lately. I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and wondering uh, a specific question that, that I asked a couple of years ago was, was just this. Uh, why is it that the Bible is mostly story, mostly narrative? Uh, and and I, I couldn't figure out the answer to that. It seems like Sunday after Sunday we kind of go to church and, and we have to take the narrative of Scripture and turn it into to bullet points, you know? So the, the five stones that David threw represent faith, hope, love, tithe, and tithe. And, <laughs> and if, you have, uh, if you have faith, hope, love, tithe, and tithe in your life, then you can, you can defeat the Goliath in your life too. So, okay, so this begs a lot of questions, right? Um, if, if faith, hope, love, tithe, and tithe are, are what the stones represent, then we're supposed to defeat the Goliath in, in our lives. Why didn't God say that in the text itself? Uh, why would he present that story and then not tell you what the story is actually about? That these are the stones and is, he, is the Bible a series of riddles? I'm serious. Is, is it, are we supposed to put it together like puzzles and figure out the mysterious keys to the kingdom inside the text and then apply that to our life? Um, to give ourselves, usually, the American dream. <laughs> or, is, or is this suspect? Is something fishy uh, when we approach the text like that? And I couldn't help but walk away and say, I think something is fishy. Uh, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. But, but um, one thing that we tend to overlook is just the power of story itself. Now, the Bible is not all narrative. There are... Uh, uh, a number of other forms of, of uh, communicating ideas, but I would say mostly it's narrative, and certainly uh, a great deal of the Old Testament is narrative. And, and interestingly enough, God doesn't very often stop to say what the story meant. He just goes on. And um, if you think about that treatment of story, it's, it's really not unfamiliar to us. We typically don't stop after a story to unpack what the story meant. Story is doing something else. For instance, if you, if you guys invited me to go see a movie, and uh, I went with you, and, and uh, you know, we were driving home, and, and I said, hey, can you just pull the car over for a second? I, wanna, I just want to talk real important about something. And we pulled the car over, and I said, um, what can we learn from, Lo from Rocky? And <laughs> You would probably not invite me to any more movies, <laughs> if you're honest. No, we don't tend to do that. I was with some friends recently. My friend Stacy got married, and uh, Stacy is a, um, a great guy. He was one of my roommates when, when I met uh, Luke years ago. And um, we got together the night of his rehearsal, and just some, his brother and some of his closest guy friends, the groomsmen, and, and we were sitting around a table and, and uh, at a restaurant, and we just sort of went around the table and, and said stories, told stories about Stacy's life. And there were some great stories, stories about rock climbing, stories about fishing. And Wes, Stacy's brother, actually told this, this uh, humorous story about one time when he and his brother went fishing. And, and I wonder what the mood would have been like in the room in the, in, around that table if I would have stopped Wes, maybe toward the end of his story, to say, um, Wes, I'm sorry, uh, what's your point? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean, Don? What's my... What, like, what's in it for me? How do I apply this to my life, right? We don't do that with stories, but we do that with Scripture. 
We do it all day with scripture. We're, we're absolutely convinced when we read a piece of narrative in the text that we are supposed to get something out of it that I directly apply to my life. Really, what we really want from the text is not to have to think about the text or consider what the text might be trying to say or to consider the text, especially in the whole context of Scripture. What we really want is somebody to give me three things that I can do. Just tell me what to do so that I don't have to actually engage these ideas. In other words, we really, we're really saying, I just want to be right. I want to wake up tomorrow and have done the three right things that I'm supposed to do. And so we have, uh, you know, the, the three keys to a biblical marriage and the seven principles of operating your finance the godly way, you know, the, the eight keys to the Jesus diet, you know, and, the, and the, all this kind of stuff. And you stand back and you think, well, this is, this is getting, you know, pretty silly. Um, I, I had some filmmakers uh, give me a call and, and say to me, Don, you know, we'd, we'd love to make a movie out of your book. And uh, I, I happened to have seen some of these guys' movies, and they were really good. And so I thought, well, you know, well, why not? Let's, let's give it a try. And, and so they flew out to Portland, and we met for about a week, and we sort of storyboarded maybe how this narrative might work if we were to turn this book into a movie. And something that consistently took place as we met and storyboarded ideas is that the filmmakers would kind of um, would stretch the truth a little bit in order to make the story work. In fact, uh, once we were done with the story, there was virtually nothing true about anything in the whole <laughs> story. And, and so, you know, I said, you know, I have, a, I have an ethical problem with this, a moral problem with, with not telling the truth in this story. And, and they said, uh, well, we'll give you this much money. And I said, okay, let's do it. Let's roll with this. <laughs> Where do I sign? God just changed his mind. But, you know, I, I said, well, you know, why do we have to make so much stuff up? And, and they said, uh, uh, well, Don, your real life is, is pretty boring, actually. <laughs> okay. But, in, you know, in the context of trying to write this, this screenplay, I got really fascinated with the elements of story and how story works. And it turns out there are principles that make a story good. And, and in, the, in the course of, the, of, of studying this stuff, I actually went down to L.A. and, and um, studied uh, under a guy named Robert McKee. And Robert McKee is probably the guru of story. He is the guy who's taught... Uh, many, many uh, Academy Award winners how to write good screenplays and good stories. He's probably in his 70s. Um, he is, uh, you know, he's been doing his thing for a long time. He's incredibly successful. Um, and he, he's become kind of um, an honorary old man, just to put, to put it bluntly. Um, he sort of resents his audience. And, and they told me this before I went. Some people who had attended a seminar told me very you know, very candidly, don't ask any questions ever. Don't raise your hand. Uh, don't look him in the eye. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like this. He's actually captured in a movie called Adaptation with Nicolas Cage. There's a, a scene where Nicolas Cage goes to a seminar, and, and in the movie, um, Robert McKee actually yells down one of the people in his audience who paid hundreds of dollars to be there, and uh, it embarrasses them, and I think they actually had to leave. They were so embarrassed. So, uh, I signed up for the seminar, and I was committed to be, you know, very quiet during the seminar, and, and uh, I, I knew that Robert McKee, because I had read his book, was not uh, a, a, a Christian and wasn't very friendly to religious ideas, um, but, but my roommate, who's also a writer, actually decided to come with me, and he didn't know any of this about Robert McKee, <clears throat> and I didn't tell him. Because, you know, it was a 36-hour seminar, and you, you had to do something for fun. <laughs> but occasionally, McKee would ask for, you know, would ask for something from the audience, you know, a bit of, you know, an example or something. And at one point, he said, give me, a, give me an example of a movie with a good car chase. And I, uh, I elbowed Jordan. I said, I'll give you five bucks to say The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> Jordan wouldn't do it, so. 
But, but here's the guru of story, and I want to just tell you what the guy, the, the guy who understands story probably better than anyone else on the planet. I want to read you just a paragraph, we're going to put it on the screen, from his book, and I think, I think it explains why God would choose to use so much narrative in the context of Scripture. He says this, and this is Robert McKee. The storyteller's selection and arrangement of events is his master metaphor for the interconnectedness of all the levels of reality, personal, political, environmental, spiritual. Stripped of its surface of characterization and location, story structure reveals his personal cosmology, his insight, his insight into the deepest patterns and motivations for how and why things happen in this world, his map of life's hidden order. Story is a lot more powerful than we thought it was. And when we, when we see a God who is communicating a message to mankind, and he's doing it over and over and over through narrative. He tells a story in the narrative, and when he's done with that story, he starts over with another story, then he starts over with another story, then another story, then another story, then another story, then another story. But what is happening as we engage these stories? Well, a lot is happening. Story is actually how we uh, set the mental compass in our brain. It's how we guide our lives. It's only in the context of story that we begin to understand what is good in the world and what is bad in the world. What is worth pursuing and what is foolish to pursue. We understand what's beautiful. We understand what's worth defending. We understand in the context of story what it is that's worth dying for. Let me give you an example of the power of story. Just call out to me some of you your favorite movies. What's a... What's a Braveheart? The Passion of the Christ? It's the car chase. Rambo, what, what's that? Forrest Gump. Beaches. What else? Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. What is, what over here? Princess Pride. Okay, good, yeah. Good, okay, let me ask you a, let me ask you a, a similar question. Uh, call out to me your favorite aspect of the Nicene aspect of the favorite aspect of the, which this is it? your favorite aspect of the Nicene Creed. Rose from the dead. Jesus. I asked this to the car chase. That's my, my favorite part, too. And believe me, if my filmmaker friends got a hold of it, there would be a car chase in the Nicene Creed. I assure you. You know, it's a, the Nicene Creed is a very beautiful thing, because what it does is it gives us guardrails for our theology and gives us sort of bullet points to um, kind of uh, keep ourselves uh, from being heretics and keep ourselves from, you know... Um, getting into the kind of theological ditches. And so, so this is, is, is pretty important. We're going to switch out this microphone, and then I'm going to blow your minds with my wisdom. It's only in the context of, of something meaningful that we begin to understand why, why creeds or why these ideas actually matter. And, and I like to think of this as the difference between truth and meaning. Truth is incredibly important. But without the context, the meaningful context, it's hard for us to engage those truths. Um, you know, an example would be, you know, if you're out with your, your sweetheart and, and uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day and... Um, and you're at a restaurant, and you're doing okay, you know, and you, you're, the candlelight is going on in the table, and you just want to do something sweet, so you, so you get a piece of paper, and, and, and you kind of, you look at your wife or, or your girl for a second, and you just, you, and you kind of, you begin to write some things, and you write, one, uh, you are five foot six, and two, uh, you have brown hair, and three, you know, you have, you have blue eyes, or, you just you fold the piece of paper and you slide it to her under the candlelight and she opens it and some of you have actually probably done this but she 
know, she opens it and uh, gives you this blank stare and kind of says, how many times are we going to have to go through this, you know? Um, but she, she probably would fail to swoon at that, at that point. Because statistics aren't very meaningful. But, you know, Shakespeare says, Had I this cheek to bathe my lips upon this hand whose touch, whose every touch would force the feeler's soul into the oath of loyalty, this object which takes prisoner, the wild motion of mine eye. That's meaningful. And it works. <laughs> it works better. I literally started memorizing poetry right out of college when I went to hear the chairman of the American debate team speak. And they couldn't get the video cameras to work because they were videotaping him. And so uh, he just recited poetry. And I watched the girls around me. And within a month, I had like books of poetry completely memorized. I didn't even like the stuff. <laughs> but I've, I've come to. So it's, it's truth in the context of meaning that will actually change our lives. If we just memorize ideas, the ideas don't have as much power. It's only when those, those ideas are applied. It's kind of like, um, um, uh, you know, if you have a manual for an electric toothbrush or something, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you unless you're actually trying to work your electric toothbrush, which if you need to read the manual, there's, you have issues in the first place. But there's... <laughs> So, so scripture, scripture is this book that, is, that has a message. It's God's message of redemption to mankind. And it's our calling to go out and take this message of healing and hope to the world. If we're trying to pull from it the American dream, um, it's going to be about as easy as trying to pull the American dream out of a manual for an electric toothbrush. This is just not what it's trying to do. But it's only in the process of applying what the Bible is actually telling us to do that, the, that Scripture actually comes alive. You guys in your fields, you know, whether you're a carpenter or, uh, or a doctor or whatever you do, you've probably heard people have conversations and maybe people have talked to you about what it is that you're a professional at doing, what you've been doing for 20 years or something like this. And uh, if they're not in your field... Um, they probably have irritated you a little bit because they don't know what they're talking about, right? A lot of times in theological circles, we can sit around and have conversations, but if we're not actually doing what Scripture tells us to do, we're like those people. It comes alive in the process of application. All of the, the narrative in Scripture is about doing. It's about stuff that's actually... One of, my, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Joseph. And Moses takes a big chunk at the end of Genesis and just tells this remarkable story about this guy named Joseph. And Joseph was uh, uh, a guy who had a bunch of brothers, and God came to him in a dream and said, uh, Joseph, someday your brothers are going to bow down to you. You're going to have a lot of power. And um, I love the Bible's honesty. It doesn't try to make heroes out of guys who aren't heroes and it loves the, the average Joe who God just chooses to use. And, and Joseph is, average Joseph is one of those guys. And uh, he actually goes to his brothers and tells them that someday they are going to bow down to him. <laughs> Which, um, and so his brothers throw him in a well. And, you know, the first time I boy that's awful that they threw him in a well and then I thought well I'd throw him in a well too if he told me I was going to bow down to him someday um, and then you know he's rescued from the well and he's, he's actually rescued by some guys who, who, who sell him into slavery now, now this is really interesting to me that, that first of all God says your brother's going to bow down and you're going to have a lot of power and then uh, the first step to what God, the vision, the dream that God said is going to come to fruition in, your, in his life, the first step is being thrown in a well. It's just like God, right? To, to do something like that. Then he's sold into slavery. By the way, in, in story terms, the part where he's thrown in a well, this is called a negative turn in the story plot. <laughs> Many of you are familiar with the negative turn. Then uh, he's sold into slavery, but, he, but he's, uh, he's sold to a guy named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar happens to be an assistant to Pharaoh. And so this is a positive turn. In the, he's getting close to power. So, oh, okay, well, that makes sense why he was thrown in the well. But then uh, something else very interesting happens. Uh, Potiphar has a wife who is, um, how do I say this kindly? She is filled with certain romantic energies. 
<laughs> that are unfulfilled. And um, she keeps coming on to Joseph. And um, Joseph uh, won't have anything to do with it. And, and one day, Potiphar's wife has a plan. She makes sure none of the servants are in the house. She finally tries to seduce Joseph one last time. And he gets away from her. And when he gets away from her, she actually is grabbing at him. And she grabs his, his coat. So she's, she's offended by this. And she calls everybody back. And she says, you know, hey, he tried to have his way with me. And look, I have evidence I have his coat. So Joseph is uh, thrown in jail. Negative turn. But, but in jail, uh, Joseph meets a, a guy who's uh, the Pharaoh's cupbearer, and he meets the guy who's the Pharaoh's baker. And so, kind of interesting, you know, this could get him to power. And, and these guys kind of have dreams, and Joseph comes to them, and he interprets their dreams. And he says to the cupbearer, he says, your dream basically means that you are going to return to power. You will hand Pharaoh his cup again. And then he says to the baker, uh, your dream means that you're going to um, die a violent death. <laughs> Which would be hard news. I, I actually tried that on my roommate the other day. He had a dream <laughs> that he was in the grocery store and couldn't find a good grapefruit. And so I interpreted it for him. <laughs> you will die a violent death. <laughs> Try it with your kids. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I don't have kids. <laughs> um, and so uh, this is kind of a positive turn. The cupbearer actually goes back uh, to power and handing the cup to Pharaoh, and, and the baker uh, dies a violent death. And, um, but the cupbearer forgets about Joseph, forgets to tell Pharaoh about this guy's uh, ability, and there's a special guy that's being held in jail. And so uh, years go by. And Joseph is stuck in jail. And um, Pharaoh has a series of dreams. And he can't find anybody to interpret these dreams well. And the cupbearer finally remembers, oh, there was that guy in prison. So Joseph is actually brought before Pharaoh. And Joseph says, your, your dreams mean this. There are going to be seven years of plenty in the land. And that will be followed by seven years of famine. And uh, you need to prepare for that. Now, here's what I would do. I would spend the seven years storing up a bunch of grain, and when the famine comes, I would go around and exchange grain for people's farms, and by the end of the famine, you'll own all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said, this guy's smart. You're hired. And Pharaoh becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt, which is, which is a, a crazy thing, because uh, these guys, these Egyptians, didn't, wouldn't even eat with Jews. I mean, Joseph had to eat at a different table than uh, the people who worked under him because they wouldn't have anything to do with it. But he's the second most powerful guy in the land. And uh, when the famine comes, the brothers, not even knowing, not even recognizing their brother Joseph, come and they beg for assistance from him and they bow down to him. And, uh, and we see that God's vision for Joseph has come to pass. But what an incredible story. It's just an awesome story. But did you know there are reasons that, that that story is good? I mean, there are principles that make a story great. And one thing that I learned in, in studying stories is that the same principles that screenwriters and storytellers use to make a story meaningful and entertaining and exciting uh, are the same, same principles that work in our lives. And, and what I mean by this is this, um, and, and you, can, you can write this down. The first thing that has to happen in a story or in a life for the life to make sense is that the protagonist or the lead character, that's you, has to have an ambition. You have to want something. All of us have probably, you ever walked out on a movie? Raise your hand if you walked out on a movie. You know, a lot of us will walk out on a movie for moral or ethical reasons. Ever walked out on a movie because it was just that bad? Yeah, I think like more than half of the DVDs I rent, uh, I turn off about 40 minutes in because I don't care what happens to anybody in the whole movie. And if you don't care what happens to anybody in the whole movie, the, the story's not going to make sense. How many of you have come to the end of a year or the end of a month or the end of a marriage and said to yourselves, this just doesn't make sense? I mean, you just wake up one morning and you say, life makes absolutely no sense. 
I no longer care what happens to any of these people. I don't even care what happens to myself. That's what it's like being stuck in a bad story. And we, we kind of spend our lives waiting for something exciting to happen. I mean, we spend our lives waiting for a story to happen to us as though it's going to happen by accident. But I'm telling you, as a writer, if you sit around waiting for a good story, um, you're not going to get it. You got to get up and sit in your chair in your boxer shorts for about four hours <laughs> and figure it out. I mean, 90% of the work in creating a story is just story. You don't even write a word. We met for hundreds of hours to write our movie before we wrote a word. We were just trying to figure out what does the character want? Why does the character want it? Why should we even care about this character? These questions have to be answered for the story to make sense. The first thing, it, just in our individual lives that will help our story make sense, is we have to have an ambition. One of the reasons that Joseph's story is because at the very beginning of the story, we see that God has given him a vision. God has given him something to want, something to desire. And so a story begins when we say, uh, I'm going to go over there. And if we don't ever say, I'm going to go over there, the story doesn't get started. I mean, stories about a guy sitting in a, a chair and not doing anything are not very interesting. Something has to happen. Something has to happen quick. And, and you know, I, I think there are some people who God gives them a specific vision. Here's what I want you to do, you know, with your life. Uh, here's what I want you to do with your family. Um, but I think most of us, there's sort of a general idea. There's general principles that God gives. Uh, you know, building wells in Africa is a great ambition. And, you know, we can kind of pray about whether God wants us to do that. But if we don't hear God talking to us, we don't hear God talking with something else, then start, right? Because you're not going to get to heaven. And he's not going to say, I, I, I told you not to build wells in Africa. I wanted you to learn to yo-yo, but you didn't. <laughs> the other thing that has to happen in, in, for, in, in order for a story to be good is the ambition has to be good. And, and I mean this, and this is, this is really critical, because we really have to, as men, you know, I think we have, to, we have to sit down and we have to say, what do I want in life? And the reason, reason I want us to ask this question, what do I want in life, is because what you want in life will dictate your story. I mean, if you want something good, you will have a good story. If you don't want something good, you won't have a good story. You will get to the end of your life and you will say, that story stunk. You will. And, and, you know, millions of people are doing it every day. They just don't have very interesting stories. Imagine, um, you know, we're sitting down, we're going to, you know, hopefully at some point this week, you'll actually say, okay, what are my ambitions? What do I want in my life? And, and let's, just, let's just take some examples of things that I've wanted in the past couple of years that would perhaps become the story of my year or the next few years. Well, let's just look at some of them. Um, I want a Volvo. Okay, well, there's nothing wrong with a Volvo. There's nothing, you know, Volvos are fine. They're very safe, you know. But let's just, let's just go into a movie theater, and let's say we're watching a movie, and the movie starts out, and here's Don, lead character, and we discover pretty early in the film that Don wants a Volvo, and we know that Don has to work a bunch of years and save up some money for the Volvo, and then at the end of the movie, Don gets the Volvo, and then you roll the credits. Well, you know, technically that is a story, right? But that story sucks. <laughs> Nobody's drying their eyes at the, end of the, at the end of that story. Nobody's crying. He got the Volvo. Can you believe he got the Volvo? Makes me believe I can get the Volvo if I work hard. I'm inspired by the Volvo story. No, and, and, so, and so what we want matters. It dictates where your life is going to go and what your story is going to say. And remember what story does? Story teaches people the highs and lows of life. Story teaches people what is worth pursuing and what is not worth pursuing. And if we want the Volvo and we work to get the Volvo and then we get the Volvo, then we've taught everybody around us that a good story is to go and get a Volvo. You know what God is doing in Scripture? He's teaching us to tell better stories. He's giving us better ambitions.
You know, a, a great test uh, in story for how you know whether or not um, you've got a good protagonist, a protagonist that people care about, a, a, an important protagonist. Um, here's the test. If, if that character died, I mean, if that character got hit by a bus or something, God forbid, what would be lost? What, what dreams would not come to pass if something happened to that character? My friend Jenna lives in Nashville. She's 25 years old. I think she's 26 now. But I, I was with her on her birthday, on her 25th birthday. Jenna has, has, uh, runs an organization called Bloodwater Mission, and, and her goal is to build 1,000 freshwater wells in Africa. She's built over 70 of them so far. Jenna, again, 25 years old, probably weighing in at about 110 pounds, right? And I, I sat there with Jenna, and, and I thought to myself, you know, if something happened to Jenna, I mean, if she, if she you, know, you know, got hit by a bus or something, hundreds of thousands of people would die. Jenna is involved in a great story. Really. She's involved in a terrific story. It's a very painful story. Jenna's learning five African languages so she can interact with um, the tribes that she works with in Africa. It's very hard work. She cries herself to sleep at night because of some of the things that she sees. She gets into very close relationships with people who end up dying of AIDS or malaria. As painful as her story is, if I were to go to Jenna and if I were to say, Jenna, I got a different story for you that's going to hurt a lot less. It's about a Volvo. <laughs> Right? There's no chance Jenna's going to bite it. Why? Because she is inside of this story and it's a page turner. She's actually plugged in and engaged in her life. She's not waking up in the morning and saying, what is life about? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. No, no, no. Your life doesn't make sense. Her life makes complete sense. My life doesn't make sense. Her life is fine. Why? Because she has an ambition and the ambition is a good ambition. As men, we're, we're fathers, we're husbands. Um, you know, I'm in this relationship with this gal, and she's very special to me. Um, and, you know, we've, we've only, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but we've recently started dating. And I, I even found just in the beginning of the relationship, it was getting, um, you know, sort of stale and normal and, uh, and not that there wasn't a lot of emotion there was a lot of emotion but there was something that was just wrong and, and I realized that we don't have an ambition I mean as a couple we don't have an ambition and so we just got together and said what, what do we want and we decided we want to be a holy couple what does, that, what does that look like and all of a sudden there's just kind of a spark back in our friendship in our relationship why? because we said let's go there here's where we're going you know, it's so easy to kind of summarize a movie. A good movie, a good story, you can summarize, you know, pretty quickly. Um, a boxer from Philadelphia who's down and out and is an underdog goes on to uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the world champ, you know, in last 12 rounds. What's the movie? Rocky, right. Well, how would people summarize your life? You ever notice there's, there's people who you... you, you, you when you, when, you, when you talk about them or introduce them to somebody or are explaining them, you say, you know, so-and-so, he's the tall guy with the thing, with the... You know why you say he's the tall guy with the thing, with the thing? Because he doesn't have a good story. Because I never introduce Jenna Lee by saying she's... I say, my friend wants to build a thousand wells in Africa. The story trumps the description. And so we ask what is my story? If somebody could summarize, is it very clear what I want in life? And is what I want in life good? I think we need to, we need to aim for that. Now, here's, here's the other thing that's going to happen uh, once, once you, you get into this ambition thing. And once you kind of... You, 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 and here's what I did. I just went and, and I was in a hotel room in Nashville, actually, because I was speaking there, but I had, a, I had a dead day that I couldn't travel on. And so I just said, today I'm going to decide what I want in life, what, what my ambition is, because I want to get my story started. And, and the very first page was just ridiculously stupid. I mean, it was things like a, a Nintendo and, you know, the, these kinds of things. And then I realized, that, okay, this is dumb. So, you know, 
And then, and then the, the next page, you know, I, 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 it was all very relational. Was, I want people to see me as a good person. I want people to, I want to care. I want to be a loving and caring friend and a loyal and faithful guy. That, and then, you know, I, after I went for a walk and after about an hour and a half or two hours, I just thought, okay, you know, that's good, but there's something, you know, I, I, I don't know what's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. It's not, it's not quite there. And so just pray, God, you know, to, Help me out. Help me figure out what would make the best story. And then the verse came to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's it. I mean, he provides it for us. He pro- I'm going there to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You cannot lose with that story. You can't. It's a great story. What a great climax to your story. That you would get to the end of it and God would say, I liked it. <laughs> right and, and here's the other thing about that there are a billion ways to get there aren't there I mean your story is your story and you get to tell it with your voice and with your life and here's the second thing ambition is the first thing we got to figure out what do I want in life and, and it needs to be clear and we need to move and go after it it needs to be good and that's going to take about, it's going to take a yellow pad for you to figure that out, right? Here's what I want. Here's the story that I'm telling my family. Here's the story that I'm telling my wife. And a lot of our wives have checked out on us. Why? Because we're a boring story. They're walking out of the theater. They are. This is going nowhere, you know? And it's time to change that and say, okay, well, let me tell you this with my life. This is a good story. Here's the second thing that's going to happen, and we just need to be ready for this. Um, a good story can't happen without conflict. It can't. It's not going to... Conflict, as soon as you get... And a lot of us, we, we don't even have a dream or an ambition because we're trying to avoid the conflict. I don't like the hard work of it. I don't like the... And conflict is natural, and conflict is good. We'll talk about conflict tomorrow night and, and how hard it is. But I just want to say a few things about it right now. The second you get an ambition for your life, it's going to get hard. You're going to have a fight on your hands, right? We've got to turn off Sports Center. We don't feel like turning off Sports Center, you know? And <laughs> um, before the fall, there was conflict. Before the fall, we had to work the earth to... to you know before the uh, fall there was pain in childbirth before the fall you know we had a tough job we couldn't fly before the fall you know gravity was still in place before the fall you got winded if you climbed a mountain before the fall conflict is inerrant in life but if you think about it, it it's one of the ways that God teaches us to value much of anything uh, a few months ago, some friends and I met in Peru, and we hiked the Inca Trail through the Andes Mountains there. And um, it was my way of, of trying to lose 40 pounds. Believe it, I, I've, I lost 40 pounds, and this is, this is where I'm at. Oh, thanks. I feel like I'm on Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> I really want that. Men crying and cheering because I lost 40 pounds. Gonna... My penis is shrinking right now, even as a... <laughs> Sorry. But, we, you know, it was 26 miles of trail, and most of it was stairs. And, you know, it topped out at about 14,000 feet. And so there was, you know, there's a lot of training involved, and this is nothing, you know, I've never done anything like this before. And we get there, and we're about, we're about three miles into the hike, and our guide, Carlos, kind of stops us on this ridge, and we're looking, we're on this plateau, and we've just finished maybe hiking about 1,000 feet up, and, and we're looking down on this ancient Incan uh, ruin site where they used to uh, grow their crops, and, um, and there's two valleys that, that kind of one from this Inca site, one goes off to the right, this is the sacred valley, and then the other one goes off to the left, and it, and it begins to climb over a pass called Dead Woman's Pass. And Carlos explained to us, uh, if we were to go through the sacred valley, uh, we would be at Machu Picchu, which was our destination, in about six hours. If we go to the left, we'll be there in about four and a half days. 
And I thought, well, let's go to the right. Like, let's push Carlos off the cliff, and then we'll go, you know, to the right. Six hours, we could do that in four days, break it up. <laughs> it's all along the riverbed. But Carlos said something interesting. He said the, the Inca Trail is actually built, you know, 26 miles, mostly stairs. They didn't have switchbacks. They just went straight up the mountain and straight down the mountain. But the reason, the, the commercial route, they would take this six-hour hike to bring goods to Machu Picchu. But anybody traveling to Machu Picchu for any other reason than to bring goods would have to take the 26-mile trail. And the reason that they did this was because uh, they wanted people to appreciate Machu Picchu when they got there. So they wanted them to actually have to work harder. And when they got there, they would say, what a beautiful city. So it's actually the pain of the journey that causes the perceived value of the thing that we're heading toward. Conflict matters. Conflict is important. Now, we get into these places where we say, this is hard, it must not be right. Um, and, and in Christian circles, you know, uh, I was going to do this thing, but God, you know, closed the door. Really? Maybe God closed the door so that you could knock it down, you know, and the story would actually be more interesting. I, I was uh, sitting next to a guy on a plane um, maybe a month ago, and he was a, an Indian fellow from Portland, and, and we got to talking, and, and it was a long flight, and, uh, you know, a couple hours in, uh, we, st we stopped talking about what we did and business and this sort of thing. And he began to talk about uh, his marriage. And he was just really open and frank with me and um, talked about how difficult it was. Been married for about five years, uh, how different he and his wife are. Um, and, uh, and I said, uh, boy, you know, I, I really want to be married someday. I hear, and he, and, he, but, and he, he basically said this. He said, I've come to the point where I, I don't know anymore whether it's worth fighting for and I thought oh my heart sank you know and uh, I said to him you know what if you know and I don't know but what if um, what if the fight is actually the thing that makes it worth fighting for right I mean what if going to battle for this thing what if working hard for this thing is the thing that gives it its value there's a reason that, that women love a diamond, right? Because they're so rare and they're so difficult to find. And, they, and a diamond's value is because, only because, of the conflict involved in getting it. it doesn't, it's just a rock. We could really do this with glass, right? Some of you did. And your wives don't know. <laughs> Yeah, may, maybe fighting for your kids is what's going to make them understand how much you love them, you know? Um, there's a reason that women want us to fight for them, because that tells them what their value is. It, it affirms their value. So conflict matters. Uh, when, when Joseph is approached by Potiphar's wife, there's a funny thing that kind of happens. Um, she tries to seduce him. He says, no, he runs. But what's taking place in that moment? Because here, here he is given a, a piece of conflict with which to tackle. And by the way, the whole story of Joseph is conflict. Everything from the ambition to realizing the end of the story is conflict. All of it. The conflict never, ever stops. And it's never, ever going to stop for you. It won't until the end. And then at the end, we just come up with a different story and we start telling a new one. And he gets to this place, Joseph gets to this place where he's approached by Potiphar's wife and uh, he busts through the conflict. And he actually doesn't give in to it. He doesn't, and, the, and what happens to the story? The story gets more beautiful. Every time conflict is put in front of us, and it's, in the, I mean, it's great in a story because you're sitting in the theater and you don't have to live there, right? But it's hard in life. It's extremely difficult. And we bust through it and the story gets more beautiful every time we do it. There's a kind of an interesting thing about writing and, and um, 
I, I used to have this office about a mile from my house, and I would get up in the morning, and I'd kind of, I'd walk down to the office, and in the mile walk, I, I'd think about what scene I'm in, and, and I was writing a novel at this time, what scene I'm in, what my characters were going to do in this story, where I needed them to go, and, and I would get to the office, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, and I'd sit down, and I'd go, okay, here's where, the, where we are in the story, here's what the characters need to do, and any of you guys who've, who've ever written, you know, you know how this works, you sit down, and you put your fingers down, and you go, okay, characters, let's go, and then you do this, and then the characters start doing things that you didn't want them to do, and you're like, no, 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 no. don't do that, you, you know, you can't go try to kill a unicorn. It's not what this story's about. You know, so you highlight and you highlight and you, and you delete it and then you go, okay, now here's what we need because I want the story to be really, really good so you got to be under control here. And then the character goes and he does something that you don't want him to do again. And so you highlight and you delete it and they seem to kind of have a mind of its own. A lot of writers will say, the story told itself to me. What I love about Joseph and what makes this story so, so good is that God is giving him the principles. He's giving them, him the story. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen. And he knows the ethics of it. And when God sits down to write the story, Joseph doesn't yank the pen out of his hand. He just says, this is what God wants. I'm going to do what God wants. Doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to do what God wants. If we obey God, our story is going to be good. If, we, if we're saturated in the Word, we understand His principles, we understand the ethics that are involved in our faith system, then our story is going to be good. We can. You may not make as much money, right? You may not uh, get your manhood validated by your secretary, but you're going to have a better story. I, I just think Satan wants us to tell stupid stories. I really do. And I think, I think Satan wants the world to look at Christians and just say, I don't ever want to live that story. That is a dumb, boring, meaningless story. Then the, the, the third thing that has to happen if a story is going to make sense, if a story is going to be good, is the story has to resolve. The story has to end. It has to be wrapped up. Now, I used to think this meant like you had to win, right? Um, I don't believe that anymore. There's, there's this great movie out years ago called Friday Night Lights about Texas football. I grew up in Texas, and the, the story is of this, this team in Odessa that uh, went all the way to the national championship in Texas state football. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was actually turned into a, a television series. I haven't seen the television series, but, uh, but it's a story of this football team. And this coach comes into town, and, and, and all kinds of hard things happen to the football team. Uh, one of the lead players uh, breaks his leg, his career is over, uh, there's the problems at quarterback, you know, and um, there's all sorts of problems in the kids' homes and in their personal lives, but they overcome all of this and they get to uh, the 5A Texas State High School Championship. And uh, you know what happens, right? I mean, they drive down in the last minute and uh, in the last second, they, and the, the whole thing is heading this way. Fourth quarter, fourth down, couple seconds on the clock, on the one-yard line. They need, to, they need to score the touchdown to win. And I'm into it. I'm just thinking this is great. I want these guys. These are good guys, and I want them to win. And um, they snap the ball, give it to the running back. The running back, you know, goes wide left and is tackled at like the four-yard line, and the movie's over. Literally, they roll the credits while you're watching the grieving players walk around on the field. And I just thought, I, I, ha I had the same kind of emotional reaction that I would if they would have won. I mean, it was just this sense of, what, what an incredible story. And I couldn't figure out why I was feeling this way. Because no stories in that way. No movies in with guys losing, you know? And I just thought, what is, I don't understand. So I just researched a little bit. It turns out that that very football team, it's all a true story. All this stuff actually happened. That very football team won the, the, the state championship the next year. And the producers went back and they looked at both years. And they said, you know, the year that they lost is actually the better story than the year that they won. Because the year that they lost, they tried harder. The year that they lost, they just tried harder. And what that means for us is, is what we have to do when we get our good ambition and we begin to tell our story to our family. 
Because we just got to try. We have to give it everything we've got. And if we don't make it, if the kids don't turn out, if the marriage doesn't work, you had a great story because you gave it everything. It didn't work out for God. The whole fall of man thing. The whole bride of Christ thing. He doesn't stop trying. He's going to write this story. And when we, when we get done, we'll go, that's beautiful. I have a friend who, um, who, who kind of came to me and, and we talked a little bit. And we're old friends and we were actually... Uh, sitting down at dinner at a restaurant and uh, he was without his family his family was back home and, and he kind of complained a little bit about the way his family was going and we're close enough friends that that he could do so honestly he has a daughter who um, is about 13 or 14 years old she's into this whole gothic uh, kind of alternative thing that's really driving him crazy uh, he found drugs in uh, in her dresser um, and she's dating a guy that he doesn't approve of. He really can't stand this guy. So as a father, he, uh, his, his method of fathering is to um, yell at her and make her go to church. Which, I'm, I don't have kids, maybe it works for you. I don't know. And um, as we talked, you know, I really started kind of, he, he was just bitter and he was tired and he was done, you know. And because we were good friends, I said to him, you know, I think I understand why your daughter's doing what she's doing. And, and I think I understand why she's not in line with, with you. And he said, explain, you know? And I said, well, if you think about it, the story that she's living within, because I think every person knows that they're created to live inside of a great story. Uh, you know, she's, she's got this guy, this boyfriend, who is, you know, just mistreating her and doesn't care about her, but she's wanted. Right? So she's got that going on in that story. The drug thing, there's some adventure there. There's some escape there. There's some release there. Maybe she's kind of designed for that a little bit. So, that, so she's kind of choosing into this story. But what are her other options? Well, as, as a dad, what story are you telling? Well, you, you, you're headed for divorce, right? She probably thinks that she's the cause of that divorce. She feels unwanted. Uh, and, and then you're associating that story with God, <laughs> making her go to church. I, I think what she's actually doing is she's looking at the two stories and she's choosing the better one. And I mean that, as harshly as it sounds, she's actually choosing the better story. And so he just said, tell me what you're talking And so I just told him how kind of story works, you know. Within two weeks, this is what my friend does, and I, I take no responsibility for this because he's crazy, but he, he really got it. I mean, he, and he went home and he said, okay, we need a good ambition. So without consulting his wife, which is not a good move, some movies move forward sloppily, <laughs> he, finds, he finds a village in Mexico that needs an orphanage through this organization. And he decides that his family is going to build that orphanage, which is going to cost $25,000. They're knee-deep into debt. Uh, they've got two mortgages. They don't have $25,000, which he thinks is great because it's just more conflict they have to overcome to make a better story. <laughs> <laughs> so he literally gets a whiteboard, and he calls a family meeting. You know, Matt, he's got a son. The son is about 15 or 16, right? And uh, he's kind of doing okay, but he's checking out a little bit too. Um, and he gets a whiteboard, and he puts it on the mantle above the fireplace, and he says, I call this family meeting. And uh, everybody's thinking, oh, Dad's going to yell at us. He's going to make us go to church. And he says, okay, there's a village in Mexico that needs an orphanage. And every, uh, the family is looking at their dad like, you know, angel, get out of my dad. You know, <laughs> he's been possessed. And uh, he, he gives them the whole spiel. And they're just looking at him like he's crazy. And his wife says, Hun, how exactly are we going to do this? And he goes, I don't know. Anybody got ideas? <laughs> That's what the whiteboard is for. Um, that meeting didn't go that well. 
But, you know, sooner or later, the family kind of went, okay, we have to do it now, right? I mean, he explained what would kind of happen if they didn't, or if somebody didn't build this orphanage. And uh, within a very short period of time, the daughter comes to him and says, you know, I've, I've got this MySpace page, and maybe I could tell people what we're trying to do, you know, there, and maybe, you know, and he says, that's great. Let's, yeah, whatever, whatever you got, you know. And the son comes to him and says, we need passports. You got to have passports to get into Mexico now. And he's like, Are we go- why? He goes, we need to go there. We need to see the village. If we're going to help these people, we want to see it hands-on. The wife is beginning to turn around. She wants to sell the new car and get a used Honda, and that will help pay for some. They're in a story. The girl, the daughter, breaks up with the boyfriend. Why'd she break up with the boyfriend? Yeah, it, because she was a wanted, but she, in, this, in the other story, but she was being used a little bit. She wasn't being, and now in this other story, she's a hero. Her, her actual identity changed based on the role she was given to play. She's a hero now. And if you go to the movies, a girl who's a hero doesn't date that loser. And I have nothing against gothic losers. <laughs> but listen, the hero girl doesn't date him, right? The unwanted girl dates him. And so the story begins to change everything. I have a friend named Bob Goff. I met Bob only weeks ago. Some friends and I were sea kayaking in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we, we kayaked about 50 miles into this inlet. And at the end of the inlet, there was this guy, Bob, and he, he's dynamited the side of a mountain. He's a billionaire. And he built a house, and he built his own uh, um, power plant that runs on a creek. And, and he sees us kayaking by the house, and he calls us in. He says, why don't you come in and get something to eat? And we're kind of going, we haven't showered in, I think, four days. We couldn't stand the smell of each other. And we, we sit down with him. Bob is the American ambassador to Uganda. And he spends time up here in Canada, up there in Canada. He's got houses, I think, you know, a lot of places. And, and his whole family was there. And he built this enormous house, and he's building a big bunkhouse that'll sleep 40 because he wanted a place to fly in world leaders to tell them about Jesus. So he flies in leaders from around the world just to have conversations about who Jesus is. In fact, he just did one a week ago. He emailed me. He said, Don, can you get up here? The ambassador from blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, you know, I don't have a suit. <laughs> and uh, I said, I, you know, we spent, I think we spent about 10 hours at his house. We were really just paddling across the bay. We got stuck there and we never wanted to leave because we felt like we'd walked into just this amazing story. What a fascinating guy. And I said, how did you start inviting world leaders to your place to talk about Jesus? And he said, you know, uh, I just noticed one day the kids were kind of bored. And I had been made the American ambassador to Uganda. And I don't know how to do that, right? And so I asked the kids, what would you do if you could sit down with world leaders? And um, his daughter, Lindsay, said, I would ask, I would ask, I want to ask them what they hope in. And then one of the sons said, I want to videotape an interview with them. And that's what I would want to do if I could meet with them. So Bob said, wow, you know, um, why don't we write them? Why don't we write all the world leaders? And, and then, Lindsay, you can ask them if you can ask them what they hope in, and maybe they'll respond. And uh, uh, a world leader responded, said, yeah, I'll grant your interview. And so Bob flies them all out, right? And he does the video interview. And then he invites them back to his place. And so far, he's had 29 world leaders come to talk to his kids, <laughs> what an amazing story what an amazing story the end of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis what a great way to end the book of Genesis um, it's fascinating um, let, let me say this first I, w- I want to say something real quick and then we'll close um, there's a problem with story in our country uh, stories aren't as good as they used to be. I probably walk out on 30% of the movies I go see because they just bore me to tears. Uh, there's a lot of people who bore us to tears. My own life bores me to tears at times, most of the time. We ask ourselves, 
why is it that story is declining? And, and Robert McKee, who is not, he, he's not a religious guy, doesn't believe in God. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's um, an agnostic. He actually, in his book, explains why story is no longer as good as story used to be. I mean, if we can just spend $100 million making things explode, then people will go see it. But the story isn't compelling at all. And, he, and I want to read you this quote from his book. We put the next slide on. You guys, I'm not going to read you the whole book. This is really just a paragraph from it. But this is fascinating from a guy who's not a believer. He says, The final cause of the decline of story runs very deep. Values. The positive-negative charges of life are at the soul of our art. The writer shapes story around a perception of what's worth living for and what's worth dying for. What is foolish to pursue. The meaning of justice, truth, the essential values. In decades past, writer and society more or less agreed on these questions. But more and more, ours has become an age of moral and... Uh, I don't know what that is. Moral and to cynicism. <laughs> Relativism and... A great confusion of values. As the family disintegrates and sexual antagonisms rise, who, for example, feels he understands the nature of love? And how, if you do have a conviction, do you express it to an ever more skeptical audience? This erosion of values has brought with it a corresponding erosion of story. Isn't that fascinating? He sounds like Jerry Falwell. <laughs> but what is he saying? In the absence of a Judeo-Christian ethic, story no longer works. Why? Because we're trying to make all kinds of dramatic stories about getting a Volvo. It doesn't work. Because everybody knows intuitively that a Volvo is not worth dying for. And until we tap into something worth dying for, we're not going to have a good story. That is why it is so important for Christians to tell great stories with their lives. You know, in, in our relationships, young guys, the whole premarital sex thing, there's a better story. We want to tell that story and affect the culture around us and affect the positive and negative charges, the mental compasses of the people that we work with. We want them to look at us and say, that's a better story than mine. I can't stop looking at that. Hey, how's that working out with the thing, with the, what happened? To, tell me the, when the, those are the stories that we want to tell. The end of the story of Joseph, put the text up on the screen, uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases, um, he paraphrases uh, uh, this, this, this end of the, the, um, Joseph's death. He goes to all the, all the brothers and gives them a, a kind of blessing, a summation of their life. And here's Joseph, and he's lived this great story. Now listen to, what, listen to how his dad sums up this story. Joseph is a wild donkey, a wild donkey by a spring, spirited donkeys on a hill. The archers with malice attacked, shooting their hate-tipped arrows, but he held steady under fire. His bow firm, his arms limber, with the backing of the champion of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel. That's a great story. That's a well done, my good and faithful servant. I just want to compare this to Benjamin, who was also a good guy, right? But, but let's go to the next one. Oh, this is the end of Joseph. The God of your father, may he help you. And may the strong God, may he give you his blessings. Blessings tumbling out of the skies. Blessings bursting up from the earth. Blessings of breasts and womb. May the blessings of your father exceed the blessings of the ancient mountains. Surpass the delights of the eternal hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph. On the brow of the one consecrated amongst his brothers. Compare this to Benjamin. Go to the next slide. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. All morning he gorges on his kill. At evening divides up what's left over. Not as good. <laughs> right? Not bad. Not bad, but not good. Benjamin goes out, he kills something, he eats it, and then he gives, after he's like gorged on it, he gives what's left over to people. Yeah, you know. I think what's, what's interesting about stories, if we keep waiting for something to happen in our lives, that will be it. It really will. I mean, people will be making crap up at our funerals. <laughs> this one time he made me laugh. You know, these, these sorts of things will be... No. That's not the story that we want. We want the great ambition, right? That's good. 
And, it's, and it's, it's easy. Just look around. There's so many hurting people in this world. Hey, you know, guy screwed up in his marriage, and he, and he wants to make it right, and he's going to spend the rest of his life healing his family, and being a provider, and being a protector, and having a holy vision for it. That's a great story. A story can be redeemed. Christ is the rescuer of our story. He's the rescuer of the whole human story, if you think about it. I think as men, uh, we need to see our, our jobs with our family as directors of story. And we go home, we say, our, our family is going to live an unbelievable story together. And your kids are going to get sucked into that. And your wife is going to have the role of the beauty queen in that story. And you're going to get to have the role of kind of the hero of that story. And your kids are going to, it's going to be like Narnia at your house. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> hey, listen, we'll pick up in the morning. John's going to talk and, and uh, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, and uh, um, it's just great to be with you. Let's, let's think about these things tonight, tomorrow. Get yourself a notebook. Write down what you want in life because that, that's what your story is going to be about. Father, we're just so grateful that you give us the freedom to walk and talk and do on this earth. We are free to do nothing and not live a story. And we are free to tell a great story that dazzles people. God, give us courage because we're going to need courage. Give us help. Give us creativity. Give us wisdom. Give us pure hearts that are even capable of telling a good story in the first place. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share a thought with you real quick. This is, how, this is how Robert McKee ends his entire book. It's about a 600-page book on story. And this is how we're going to close tonight. Robert McKee says this, and this is sort of our uh, benediction, an agnostic benediction for a group of conservative Baptists. <laughs> Write every day, line by line, page by page, hour by hour. Do this despite fear, because you're going to get scared. For above all else, beyond imagination and skill, what the world asks of you is courage. Courage to risk rejection, ridicule, and failure. As you follow the quest for stories told with meaning and beauty, study thoughtfully, but write boldly. Then, like the hero of the fable, your dance will dazzle the world. I think we got a lot of good stories in the room. I'm looking forward to next year when we get to hear what some of those are. All right, good night.